Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak to a young man who's 17 years old and is in the process of trying to decide what he's going to do with the next part of his life. Now, in the course of the discussions, I wanted to make sure I found out a few things about him. Fortunately, you know, he's doing pretty good in school academically. He's also a football player, and I think this year is actually his, going to be his, his first year to actually start. And I was also surprised that he was in the early phases of kind of researching whether or what college he was looking for in terms of going to. But I was trying to put myself in the place of what it was like to be 17 again. I haven't seen 17 since 87, so in my mind, I'm like, you know what, I, I want to, as opposed to talking at him, I want to find out where he is. And one of the ways I did was I wanted to ask him a few questions about himself. And most importantly, I started with a kind of a fundamental question that nobody asked me when I was his age. What are you passionate about? You know, when you're 17, you tend to throw out all these lofty things about, oh, this, this, about these various careers that you're thinking about based on what you think. But when you start asking something straightforward like passion, that forces you to look at the things that you enjoy doing. So I asked him, I said, you know, he, you know, what are you passionate about? Well, he mentioned a few things. And in the course of our discussion, he came around to playing video games, or as the young people would say, he's a gamer. Now, I didn't just want to stop right there. You know, so he was telling me, and I asked him, you know, how good are you? And kind of tell me what kind of games you're talking about. 
Well, he was describing some of the games, and he actually told me that he had participated in a few competitions. He had created a uh, YouTube video site, and that he was actually getting some fairly good attention. So as we were talking, you know, most of his energy came from talking about gaming. He wasn't talking about getting a degree or going to military or anything like that. Gaming was really where his passion lied. So I asked him a follow-up question. I said, okay, have you ever given thought to the possibility of making this a career? Well, then he mentioned to me about a few other things and then mentioned that he had only passively started looking because he wasn't quite sure that this was something he could truly make a career out of. So, you know, he's kind of giving me the, the standard 17-year-old line where I like it, I think this is great, I would love to do it, but I need to be responsible, so I'm not sure if I can do this. So I'm gonna look to the other areas that a lot of the adults, he didn't, he didn't say this, but kind of what the other adults kind of would expect him to do in order to make a career for himself. And then he would maybe come back to it later, just in the off chance. So in the course I had of, of talking with him, we actually had his uncle on the line too, but it was a Zoom call. We started giving him some ideas about things to consider, you know, like competition teams and colleges. Had he, because he was aware that there were some universities that actually had gaming competition teams. And so we were like, have you researched them? Have you researched maybe how participating in these teams can get you greater experience, greater notoriety, greater opportunity to showcase what you're thinking about doing? And to our surprise, you know, he said, okay, well, I'm gonna start researching some of these schools and as well as researching whether or not there are streams of revenue that could be generated as a result of this. And I will tell you, he was aware that there was revenue streams because he operates in these communities, but he had just never actively spoke to anyone about how to make a living gaming. Now, in the course of talking to him, we did encourage him to explore all those areas. And we encouraged him to look at seeing how going to college, if that's something he was interested in, and joining a college gaming team could assist him in transitioning into the competitive arena in a manner that could help him in the long run. And like I said, to my surprise, he knew of individuals who were operating within this world, but he also was aware that if he was really going to make this a full-time thing, he needed to upgrade. He needed to have a better console, better computer system, better software, and all the things necessary in order to be competitive if that is the direction he was going. So I ended my discussion with him by asking this question. If you could do gaming on a full-time basis, competitively, would you do it? He paused for a second. He said, yeah, I would. I, and I'm like, seriously, if you had everything you needed to do this competitively, meaning the gaming system, upgrading the software, everything, would you do it? If you could make a living doing this, would you? And his answer again, I said, was yes. So it was at this point that I, that I expressed to him that he is in a great place to explore all these possibilities. I reminded him that he is in a unique position because he's young, so people are willing to help him if he just asks. But there was something else about that discussion that he and I had that really resonated with me. His world in 2022 as a 17-year-old 
was different from my world as a 17 year old in 1987. He is 17 years old in 2022. When I, and when I was talking to him, I was enamored by the fact that there are so many different revenue streams that are available to his generation today and different pathways to success that were not readily available when I was his age. See, I'm looking at him and the people who are giving him guidance. From my world, my mom grew up immediately following World War II in a heavy manufacturing and industrial era during the heart and height of the Jim Crow segregation years. My grandparents, grandfather fought in the war, grandmother was, was, here, as, was here as well, and so they came from that deeply segregated society. And during those times, you, you figure my grandparents were born in the 1920s, mom was born in the 1940s. You're talking about a period of time where if you were a person of color, your avenues for success were fairly limited. And I can tell you that for most of my friends of my generation, uh, we're considered Generation X, for us, Coming in, it was often regularly promoted that there were three ways that were pathways for your success. Military, tech school, or college. That's it. Now, I'm not saying that you couldn't get a job at a convenience store or working at a gas station and so forth like that. I'm not saying that you couldn't go work for your family business and so forth, that's great. But the most of us, that was what was considered, what I would call our path, our pathways for success. At the age of 17, again, this would have been 1987 for me. So you have to stop and think for a second. This is 1987. This was the early years of video games. I mean, by the time I hit 17, I think we had just moved out of the Atari vision. And for those of you who are like Atari, look it up on Google. Intellivision, if you don't know what Intellivision is, look it up on Google. And Nintendo, you should know what that is. And that was around the time I was heading into my mid to late teens. By the time I turned 17, we've now, you know, video arcades are, were still a thing during this time period. The most popular video games at the time were Space Invaders, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, you know. We're still talking about standalone video games in terms of, there were some competitions here and there, but nothing as it is today. And let me just be clear, I do not know if I would have been able to walk into my apartment and look at my mom as a 17 year old with a straight face and tell her that I want to make a living playing video games. I'm not even totally sure she would not have thought I had lost my mind. But the reality is, is that I came from a world where gaming was not what it is today. I also came from a world where being an influencer is not what it is today. I also came from a world where there was no multiple streams of revenue as a result of podcasting or videos on TikTok or Instagram Reels or YouTube videos. The whole idea of making money from blogging or gaming or even doing things like riding a skateboard or snowboarding, none of those things existed when I was coming of age around 17 is the same age as this young man here. It was purely recreational for a lot of these things, and I never thought of it as being an opportunity for success for my future. I had video games, I had a video game console, I played video games, but I never viewed it from the standpoint as an opportunity for success or even a career. 
like it is today. And it's important because once you slide into the generation of being in your middle ages or someone like me in your early 50s, you have a lot of great insight and information that you can share with younger generations. But sometimes it's important to remember that the opportunities that the current generation has today are vastly superior and in greater numbers than they were when we were their age. I can tell that it was really hard when I was talking to him to fight the urge to encourage him to merely go to college. As a college graduate myself, I have been conditioned that the greatest opportunity in that or avenues of success was to go into college. Now, there's nothing wrong with technical schools. There's nothing wrong with going into the military. But I came from a culture where the people who were around me, who were successful, or at least the people who I viewed as being successful, were all college graduates with advanced degrees. I wasn't in a world where other opportunities existed for success. And there was no one in my immediate world that could demonstrate to me other avenues for success outside of those three. But today we live in a new world. And in this world, there are so many different ways beyond the normal going to college or going to technical school or joining the military that kids can use to move forward. So as much as I enjoyed having the conversation and providing wisdom and guidance to this young man, what he didn't realize is that he was providing wisdom and guidance to me. Because in this brief conversation he and I had, he helped me realize that it's important that when I am sharing whatever wisdom I can pass on to the next generation, that I focus on sharing information based on where the current generation is today. And I have to be willing to modify what I shared with them so this way, whatever I believe they can glean from in terms of my experience can be applicable to today and not the old school way of doing things back when I was their age. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to speak to a law school uh, community and I was asked a very interesting question. How do you navigate social media in a way that does not adversely affect your career? Or put another way, should you even have a social media presence if you plan on maneuvering in the legal community? Now, I know I am not special because I have countless friends who are attorneys who have robust social media presence, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. But I had to stop and think about it for a second because all of these friends of mine are individuals who've been practicing law for a number of years, if not even decades. Hell, I just crossed the 20 year threshold last year in terms of practicing. But now I've had a chance to stop and think about the question that, they was, being, that was being asked of me and I didn't realize or think to think about the world order that new students who are coming in this now, nowadays, whether they, be, whether they be the last students or any other students are going into today. If I were to just focus on my undergrad experience, I graduated under, from undergrad in 1991. I graduated from grad school in 1995. I graduated from law school in 2001. If I were to focus on my undergrad experience, I graduated from undergrad in 1991. I graduated from grad school in 1995. I graduated from law school in 2001. At best, the best social media type presence that was available at the time when I started practicing was probably MySpace 
if any of you can remember that. That was probably the extent. We were still in the years of, you've got mail. We were still in the environment of chat rooms and various interesting sites that you could visit. I didn't get exposed to things like Facebook until after I had started mentoring some young college students. And this is like the early 2000s, like around 2005 and six. Therefore, by the time I started engaging in the social media arena, I had been practicing law for a few years. Now, when I started dabbling in creating a more pronounced and robust social media presence, which would have been around 2006 with the formation of my first blog, which eventually, eventually transitioned into YouTubing and podcasting, I had already been a professional in the professional world for a few years. During that time period, I had the opportunity to listen to a former congressman and a prominent attorney who once said that his attitude about doing things was based on the sunshine law of Florida. His attitude was, if you do everything in the light, you never have to worry about something from the dark coming to get you. So when I started doing things on social media, I always did it with that mindset in mind. So from the very beginning, I went into doing everything with this, with this attitude that I don't put out anything out there that I cannot defend, explain, or justify. Now, in the words of some of my friends, that's like putting a straitjacket on yourself. But in my mind, I truly believe that it was important to separate the things that you would put online to the things that you would have offline. With the growing presence of social media, there has been this growing blurring of the line of what's online as opposed to what's offline. The worlds often collide. In way too many circumstances, people have a tendency to think that the things they put online should have no bearing to them offline. But we are moving more and more into the world where that's not necessarily the case. But there's another point to underscore as well. How do you maneuver in a world that's been part of your world order from the day you came out? Let me put it to you like this. I'm not talking about somebody finding an old yearbook photo. I'm not talking about somebody who's found an old video of you at a party you had no business being and putting it online. That's what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who have actually lived their life out loud online. We're talking about people maybe even as young as preteens putting things online because they did not have a care in the world about what impact it would have on them in the long run. I guarantee you that if I go back in the past, I could find a lot of knucklehead things that I did in my younger days that I am so glad are not online. But in reality, when I was coming up, there was no world vehicle to give me the opportunity to do that online. There was nothing that you could do that would capture this information, put it in a space like the internet, that would stay there forever that I'd have to explain later. There's nothing that I put from my you know, high school days, junior high school days, and I'm like, oh my gosh, now I've got to explain to somebody what, why I was doing what I was doing here. Which brings me back to the original question. I know that it was asked from a legal career standpoint, but from a professional career standpoint and a reputational standpoint, that's a good question as well. The problem that you run across when trying to ask and answer the question about a social media presence, it's not about whether you should maintain one. It's about whether you have had one already and if there's anything in that prior one that may have an impact on you today. We are probably about a good 20 years in in terms of social media tools that are available for you to 
live your life out loud online, whether it be the early days of things like, like I said, like chat rooms or things like MySpace and, and you know, there, was, there were sites like Black Planet where you could have your individual personal profile. But we're now just starting a new generation of kids and young people who have now come into a world where social media and living your life online out loud is a natural part of your life experience. And not only did they grow up with this experience, but they also posted all of the good, the bad, and the ugly things that they'd done along the way. Now you're spending a good deal of your time trying to rehabilitate, scrub, or rationalize what you did when you were younger and doing your best to ensure that it's not an accurate reflection of who you are today. So if I had a chance to go back and speak to those college kids in law school and ask them should they have a social media presence, my answer probably is a little different. My answer effectively would be, I believe I, you know, and I believe I said something similar to this in terms of what I was answering. The question is not whether you can have a social media presence. The question is, is the social media presence that you already have one that you may worry that may paint you in a light that you'll have difficulty in explaining it away. If you've lived all of your life online, whether or not you know it, your social media presence has already crafted a reputation of you. If you collectively take everything you've posted from pictures, content, words, videos, if you take those things collectively, they have created a representational reputation of you that's been established for everyone to see. Now, we all know at the end of the day that we make mistakes and that we grow beyond those mistakes. But in the end, the ultimate question you really need to ask yourself is that if you've been living your life online for so long, instead of worrying about whether or not you should have a social media presence, you really should ask yourself, what does your digital reputation say about you and is it possible to change it or reinforce it in a way so that it truly reflects who you are offline as well as online? Back in 2005, I was working with a nonprofit to put on a large teen event. Part of the responsibility that I had was to fundraise. Now, I will tell you that my philosophy at that time regarding fundraise was kind of like a death of a thousand cuts. I figured I could get a lot of little money from people and collectively it would give me the ability to do what I needed to do. During that time, I had a friend of mine who connected me with a woman who was the general manager for the International Mall in Tampa. And I still remember having the conversation with her because I was going to ask her permission to speak to all the various shops in this very upscale mall to see about getting fundraising money. Now before you even ask, I'll tell you in advance, she didn't give me permission. But what she did do was she ended up giving me something so much more in terms of advice that changed my philosophy regarding fundraising. So in the course of having our discussion, she asked me a very hard question. She asked me, how much money was I trying to raise? Well, in my mind, that was fairly easy. I told her how much. Then she asked me another question, which was, if you could get all of your money from one source, would you need to ask more than one person? Again, in my mind, if one person gave me all the money we needed, then I don't need to ask a whole lot of other people. As a matter of fact, I probably don't need to ask anyone. So she then turned to me and told me, then why are you not asking for just everything you need from more than one person? Now, for a second there, I got a little confused, but here's what she's effectively told me. 
She said too many times when people are fundraising, they're looking for a lot of little dollars and trying to collectively add that money up. And now don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with asking for a lot of little dollars. However, if you ask for the big dollars, you may end up having one of two things happen. One, you may get all the money you need from one source, therefore you don't need to ask anyone else. Two, they may not give you the, the entire dollar amount, but they may give you more than the little amount you intended to ask for. It was fascinating because I had never thought of it like that. I never thought about asking for big money because I had convinced myself that nobody would be willing to contribute a large sum of money. However, she effectively conditioned my mind to ask for large amounts because this way, if the person or the organization cannot give you that amount, but they still give you something, you're still getting more than what you would have gotten had you only asked for something less. The best part of having this change of mindset is that it forced me to have to personalize what I was asking for. See, when you're thinking about a whole bunch of little dollars, what ends up happening is that you only think about how those little dollars can apply to the little aspects of what you're trying to do. But when you're asking for bigger dollars, or at least in my case, when I was asking for bigger dollars, I knew it was important for whatever product we were put on had to be consistent with the money we were asking for. In other words, if I'm asking for big dollars, in order for us to be able to put on this big event, I had to make sure that it conveyed that this was a big event. And by doing this, I was forced to have to learn how to do a better job of personalizing what I was asking for. Again, I know all this sounds lofty, but one of the things I learned during this time period was the importance of asking for more than what you really need and the importance of personalizing it so people can feel a definitive connection to what they're contributing to. Being an, an attorney in any organization is always a fun exercise. Now, if you're not an attorney, you may not necessarily see the fun part. But as an attorney myself, depending on the organization that you are in, you can either be well-loved or well-hated. The reason I use this as an example is that like most people in their various professions, you will really never, you really never take off your professional hat. If you happen to hear something during the course of any meeting that triggers something in your mind that relates to what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, you will usually comment or give your opinion based on that area of expertise. No heavy lifting there. However, as an attorney, it comes as an attorney, there's a few unique strings because almost every organization has to deal with something from a legal standpoint. Now, I'm pretty sure plenty of attorneys who are part of other organizations that are not legal organizations do not want to end up being the organization's de facto attorney, which means, well, the person is the attorney, so we're going to just make them the attorney. Anytime we have legal questions, we're going to run everything legally by them, especially if some of the day-to-day -day operations questions are outside of the scope of what the attorney actually does on their own job. However, as an attorney, we are trained to critically think. Most of us have a certain standard book of courses that we had to take in law school that are usually applicable to day-to-day -day activities. And our ability to critical think, critically think is a huge part of our legal expertise and our training. So you should not be surprised when you find yourself in a position of having to deal with an attorney in your organization who is always asking questions about things in general. Now I can tell you from my standpoint, I have on more than one occasion found myself asking questions. Not because I'm trying to cause trouble, it's just that if I hear something that sounds wonky from a legal standpoint, I usually will say something 
or I will encourage the organization to seek legal counsel because I believe there is something that might require it. Now, if I'm lucky enough to be in an organization that has more than one attorney, I am probably not going to say a whole lot because I'm going to trust the other attorneys in the room will say something before I do. But I can tell you on more than one occasion, I've been a, a part of an organization where I was the only attorney. And the number of times people have turned to me and looked at me because something popped up and they were worried about legal exposure. And then all of a sudden, all eyes were on me. It's usually those times where I'm like, okay, you need to go talk to an outside counsel. But here's where the nightmare part comes in. The nightmare part usually comes up when the organization is trying to do something that it wants. And I effectively open my mouth and say, well, you might want to think about A, B, C, D, and E. And usually by the time I've gotten to A, B, C, D, and E, we've moved all the way down to X, Y, Z, which then leaves the organization in this unique position of having to decide whether to go forward or risk the possibility of exposure or having to deal with headaches that they did not want to deal with. And it's at that point, the love of attorney leaves. The reality is that attorneys do not know everything. They don't know all aspects of the law. They don't know every law, but we've been trained to look at things critically. And in a lot of instances, if we see something that does not look right or sound right or smell right, we trust our instincts because we've been trained to look for things that don't look right, smell right, or sound right. However, this perspective can be very helpful in situations where organizations are trying to avoid any legal entanglements, but it can also be a nightmare if you're dealing with a situation where you're always trying to do something and it just feels like the attorney is always throwing cold water on things. If you find yourself in an organization with an attorney that always tends to have comments about things, take my word for it, that's a good thing. Whether you believe it or not, that attorney is probably trying their best to keep the organization from getting into trouble. Way too many organizations and people have done things not knowing the potential legal ramification of those actions until something jacked up happens. That's it for another episode of In The Know. I am Tony Reeves, and as always, if you want to follow me, you know what to do. You can find me at My Name Is Reeves on all social media outlets, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you when I see you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. 
Granger, for the ones who get it done.